1: I've always been a nervous person, and when people look at me, I just, I, I just, torn away.
2: They have mixed in very well. Uh, well, we regard them as uh, people, you know, as ordinary people here now. That uh, there's no difference whatsoever, and they mix in and they take part in everything that's going on, and they're included in everything.
3: It's largely hidden. It's largely hidden because people are afraid of mental illness. And the reason we're afraid of mental illness is because we don't know a lot, a lot about it. And the worst part of that is, you know people suffer from anxiety or panic attacks, they think that they're the only people in this world that suffer like that.
4: There is a myth going about that community care for people with mental illness is a, is a cheap way to provide an alternative. It's, m- it's more expensive to treat people in the community, but I think it's well worthwhile.
5: If you become mentally ill in, say, ten years from now, you're very unlikely ever to go to hospital. Instead, you'll probably be referred to an outpatients clinic, to a crisis intervention unit, to a day centre, or maybe to live in a small hostel. And you won't become a social outcast as a result of your illness... It'll be accepted as something fairly normal, which happens to 1 in 10 of the people around you. That's the intention, at least, if the Department of Health's policy on the future of the psychiatric services is carried out. The policy is known as care in the community, a comforting kind of phrase. This programme looks at how it works in practice. What are its prospects of success? And what effect will it have on the community? In other words, on all of us.
1: I'm nervous of people and I um, I, I am. Um, I just. I don't feel like anyone else sometimes, it's just ordinary, you know. I don't know what way to be with myself sometimes. I get so confused, you know. But there's no one doing it to me, only myself.
5: And what about other people? Do you find it hard to get on with other people?
1: I do. But I don't know why. Maybe it's my upbringing from when I was small. My father gave us a terrible time. He used to fight the light of us when we were kids, you know. And, um, I mean, coming in drunk and my mother having to run out the street away from him and all that.
5: When you're with other people, are you afraid of what they think of
1: you? No, but I'm afraid I won't, actually. I, like, if I went into a pub and wanted to go in for a drink, I'd say to myself, I'd go in, then i say, I won't, I will, I won't, I will, I won't. I'd go in and then i think I'd get a bit confused. And I don't feel right, the same as anyone else, just... Be yourself. <laughs> i would to be not nervous, you know. I'm just
5: looking at you, mind Just. This... <sighs> Have you had problems with a place to
1: live? I had problems. I uh, I got a flat, and it made me it made my nerves worse. It was rough and ready, and I didn't didn't suit me.
5: What kind of a place was it?
1: It was an old house, and you wouldn't feel safe in a yet your property or anything like that, you know. And um, it affected me mentally and physically and I had to get out of it and I got in a different place.
5: Do you find it hard living on your own?
1: I do. I've always been a nervous person and when people look at me I just, I I just turn away. I'd like for something to do during the day, you know, if someone could do that for me. My problem is now that I'm not not doing any work. I've nothing to do during the day And I'm open about the house for it. I don't go out much because I've nothing to go out for. I had a purpose to be out of
5: Peg McManus's brother has suffered from schizophrenia for years.
3: He was almost impossible at times. And my father began to say, think he was evil, and he was lazy, and he was callous. I mean, callous would be the word. He came across like an,
5: an immovable rock. and you didn't know that he was ill; you thought he was just like that.
3: Oh, we had no idea. I mean, I—I I, I mean, schizophrenia was a word to me. I had no idea what it meant. Um, we, yes, we just thought evil was the word that was put on him. He was paranoid, right? So we began to think there was something wrong with us as well. Every member of the family became affected by him. Um, and had we been told look this is the way the illness he might get paranoid he might think you're all against him we would have known at least how to deal with him but not having that information we thought there was something wrong with our family and what's he like now how how does his illness affect him well he has periods when he's quite good he he really is and he's delightful to be with I really enjoy him because he's one of the most intelligent, sensitive beings that I've ever met. I know he's my brother, but that's the way I see him. Um, But then he has, I don't know what they call it, a relapse when he has periods when he, he thinks he's God. The last time it happened, he thought he was God. And he came out of that slightly, and I remember going to see him. And the worst thing that I can remember about him is the despair, you know, What kind of despair? The knowing despair. The knowing that he had lost a hold on reality himself and almost not been able to do anything about it.
5: So he realises he's
3: ill. He realises that he's ill and he can't change it and he can't stop it. And he's often said to me that he would love, he would dearly love to get married and have a family and settle down and lead a normal life. That's what he's always wished
5: for. But he, 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 he realises that is not for him. What no. kind of help do you think he could have or should have? Is there is there much that anybody can do? I don't know. I
3: suppose the ideal thing would have been a halfway house rather than going to a flat on his own because he spends large amount of time watching telly and kind of... I'd say his days almost pass in a, in a daze. Uh, what kind of help? I think... ..if there had been a sheltered workshop or something that he could have gone to. Or even um, somebody to call every day, just to see that he was OK. So, who's living in the house
5: here, then?
6: Well, there's five men actually living in this house. It's just outside the village of Oilgate, it's just up the road, and... Uh, Uh, We have five men living here for the last three years and uh, really has been a very successful...
5: Care in the community has has already changed the lives of many people in Ireland who've spent long periods in psychiatric hospitals. St Sennans in Enniscorthy County, Wexford, is one of a number of large hospitals which have developed programmes to help selected patients to move out into ordinary houses. I visited one of the houses and met two men who've moved from the hospital... Michael, who spent most of his life in England, and Paddy, who's from County Wexford. What difference has the move made to their lives?
7: The oh, difference I, I seem to think is this that when you're in a hospital, you're confined and your, your movements are checked, and you have no way of seeing the outside world from day to day over a period of years, and you get very fed up and drawn and annoyed with this, and you wonder, when am I going to get out of here?
5: So now that you're living in a house, do you get to do more things for yourself?
7: Oh, yeah, we can do whatever we like, as far as our own arrangements are concerned in the house.
5: What about the neighbours around here? How do they react to the...
7: Oh, they just movement? treat us. They just treat us as... OK, like, you know... We don't, we don't uh, annoy anyone, you know. John Joe had his girlfriend, and I go up to the shop there every evening to get my paper and get cigarettes and however I want. And I come home, and Dave comes in from Enescarti and had a bit of a lark about the day, <laughs> you know. And it's much different. All big much different from the big art.
8: Well, the hospital, I found that you had to, you were being watched all the time. Even if you were given freedom to go into the town and score, for you, you you had, you had to uh, ask first before you went anywhere.
5: Can you tell me something about daily life in the hospital? What kinds of things went it's very, on? It's
8: very regimented. You get up at a certain time. You go to bed. You have like, to out at a certain time. Like, meals are always at a certain time. Even the cup of tea you get is at a certain time. You get a bit bored with the whole situation. I think at the end it was I had to ask to get out the hospital to come down to a hostel.
5: And what's this like?
8: This is very nice very comfortable, there's no interference by the hospital at all I go in once a day every day, five days a week to the hospital to get my meals and to go into occupational therapy where uh, they keep your mind alert the place, the hostel itself is, is very close to the village and even though there isn't very much in the village at least you can go out and talk to some people different to the hospital life altogether
5: Do you find you have more contact with neighbours than you had in the hospital?
8: The, the people in the pub they, they are the real neighbours because they are people who have nothing to do with the hospital so you can talk to them in a more friendly way and uh, if you want or you don't have to talk to anybody at all. You can just sit there and relax in the friendly atmosphere.
5: And how do you find you get on, then, with the neighbours in the pub?
8: Very well. They all know my name. I don't know their names yet. I'm sure I'll figure it out one day. They, they, I was introduced to the landlord, and when, when, when he called me by my first name, they all heard the name being called, I should say. And they were probably told I was in the hospital by by the landlord there, the owner of the pub. So they've been very friendly, but they've said to me how how well I've fitted in there. They they talk to me like a normal person, which is a great, without any effort, it's a great deal to me to be able to talk to people.
5: So are you saying you, you haven't found them judging you because you've been in the hospital?
8: Yes, they don't talk to me as if I'm in that case or anything like that. They talk to me on a similar level to what they would talk to their friends.
5: You're living in the house here with four others. How do the five of you get on together?
8: Very well. We pull together and we get on all right. We go down to oilgate gate together we'd, or we pick out some horses on a Saturday and listen to the radio, airs and Graces, see how well we do. I mean, we're not... Uh, Buddies who go drinking or die together, but I mean, we're getting all right together, you know.
5: So, how is this sort of move into the community organised? Pether Moulton is the hostel supervisor in St Sennans in Enniscorthy.
6: Well, and there's very careful preparation and selection of clients uh, before they are sent to hostel accommodation. We have in St Sennans Hospital in Enniscorthy, we have what's known as a pre-hostel training unit, and. Uh, what happens in that unit is when people are selected or thought suitable uh, to live in hostel accommodation they are sent to that unit and uh, you know yourself with uh, modern technology uh, you have people in the hospital for up to 20 years they have to be taught again the ordinary everyday living skills of how to use a modern washing machine, maybe a dryer, a cooker, They have their own room. and. Uh, look after that room.
5: So what kinds of needs do people have? What kinds of skills do they need to learn?
6: Well, it's the ordinary everyday living skills of how to use a telephone, for example, how to wash themselves, how to use public transport and uh, how to communicate with other people.
5: But why would people not be able to do these sort of day-to-day things?
6: Well, take, for example, the telephone. There's a lot of people... Uh, that were in hospital before the telephone, they don't even know what a telephone is. And the fact that on ward level, uh, they don't have uh, the use of a telephone.
5: When somebody moves into a hostel then, what kind of help do you give them? What kind of support do you give them?
6: Well, what I what I do is uh, that uh, the fact that I have moved into a whole new world uh, means that they are a bit frightened at first. Uh, They need a lot of reassurance. Uh, The first thing that I do, Mm -hmm. I introduce them to uh, the local uh, grocer or the local publican and uh, I go for a few drinks or I uh, I go to the local hall and uh, I introduce them to people and I uh, get them involved with people and uh, I keep in close contact with them for the first few months And gradually, from my experience, I find that you can taper off this as time goes on. These people learn to become more independent and they like doing things for themselves, to make their own friends and uh, eventually they become very independent people.
5: But for many people coming out of mental hospitals every week, there's no rehabilitation programme and no preparation of the community. The majority of them will have spent only a few weeks or months in hospital. How do other people react to them?
9: Well, my experience is when I I talked to friends that I got to know after I came out of hospital, I started to tell them about that I was in hospital with postnatal depression and that um, I felt isolated and that I had made a mistake and that I hadn't a very good marriage, that actually my husband was antisocial and that he never took me out anywhere. And they said to me, "Teresa, you couldn't have depression, you're very... Outgoing, you know. They didn't know how to help me. Actually, they would listen to me when I told them about my depression and about how I was all alone and my family away from me and <clears throat> my mother not keeping well and my dad died. Um, they actually got tired listening to me and they just said they didn't know how to help me. You know that they would, they couldn't understand how I could be helped actually.
5: What about your husband's family? They were around at the time. What was their attitude to your being ill?
9: Well, the the attitude was that um, uh, that I really let them down, that I shouldn't have I shouldn't have been um, in hospital at all.
5: So they weren't, are you saying they, they didn't worry about what you were going through?
9: Oh no! They just said that I was mad. My, my, my. His family would say that I was actually mad.
5: You're living in a flat now yourself. Would you feel comfortable talking to people you met who are living maybe in the same house as you about your own experience of illness?
9: Oh no way! I would have. No, I would hesitate before I would tell anybody ever again about my being in hospital or about my depression because they don't want to know or they don't care. They might listen, but apparently a week or two after, they will say, well, um, Teresa, um, uh, you had depression, or they would look down on me that it could hit me at any time that I could break down or uh, all the stigmas, actually. Depression, actually, a lot of people would think that um, you can commit suicide if you're depressed or that you're... um, uh, very dangerous, which is untrue.
5: But if people want to be helpful, if friends and neighbours want to be welcoming, how should they go about it? What should they be sensitive to? Mary O'Mahony of the Mental Health Association.
10: I think that one of the first things to go in if you're feeling mentally unwell is your confidence. Your confidence, I'm told, is the last thing that returns after a mental illness. And... I don't think that that confidence is something you can give back to yourself totally. It has to come from others. It has to come from others. It has to come from people around you. And if you talk to somebody who has really suffered from a mental breakdown, they'll say that it's not until they can look a person straight in the eye that they feel well again. I met two people, that's a few years ago now, um, in the west of Ireland, a brother and sister. The brother had been discharged from hospital, a general hospital, where he'd had a physical illness, an operation, and he came home having spent three weeks in the general hospital. And on the same day that he was discharged, a Sunday, his sister had spent six months in the local mental hospital. And they both arrived home, in the same car, to the same home, and there were neighbours in. Now, the man who had only been three weeks away, most of those neighbours had visited him while he was in hospital and gave him a rousing welcome and asked him how he was and told him to take care of himself. But to the sister, who had been six months in a mental hospital, not one of the neighbours had visited her and passed off her return with a very sort of casual, fine day it is, or the match is on today, and ignored totally. Do you think that was because they didn't know what to say? That is very true. There was an embarrassment. They didn't understand what to say. But I think that we've got to learn far more about the causes, treatment and care of people who suffer mental illness.
5: Back in Enniscorthy, however, a change of attitude has taken place on the part of whole neighbourhoods. Anne Byrne lives up the road from a house for ex-psychiatric patients in Brownswood. What was her picture of mental illness before they moved in?
2: My picture of mental illness at the time, I suppose I was uh, ignorant of the situation and uh, I was a bit scared of such people coming to live in the area.
5: Why do you think you were scared? Why? Um Because I felt that... Um,
2: they were um, people that you couldn't um, relax with and... Uh, Uh, trust them, really, you know, Uh, living with people, that they would uh, react differently than what we have proved that they did, you know. You have children. Were you worried about them? I was. I I think that was my main fear of the children, particularly if they went out on bicycles and things like that over the road. Um, Yes, that was my biggest fear of those and I have found from visiting um, the mental hospital down here that children were, um, the, the children were um, uh, very popular with the patients and uh, they always seemed to go for children and uh, this was a, a big fear with me.
5: And what did you think they would do to the children that you were worried about?
2: I don't know, really. Um, I suppose maybe attack them would be maybe one of the biggest fears I had. Um, Or bring them into the houses and you know, that the children wouldn't be able to cope with the situation then, you know.
5: And how have the children got on with the people? The
2: children have got on fantastic with them. And um, numerous times if they the men are going down the road at night-time, which they do most nights if their boys are home from school and they're outside, particularly in the summertime if they're outside playing, and uh, they come uh, come in and they ask me, uh, can the boys come in for a cup of tea? They would have already asked them, but they would come in and say, uh, can Michael or Jim or whatever come in for a cup of tea? And the boys would be only too delighted to come in.
5: So how have the people living in the houses here mixed in in the neighbourhood? They have mixed in very
2: well. Uh, Well, we regard them as people, you know, as ordinary people here now, that uh, there's no difference whatsoever, and they mix in and they take part in everything that's going on, and they're included in everything. You know, if neighbours are being included, they are included also. They are part of the neighbourhood and uh, they have mixed in very well and uh, we used to have games of cards. They would invite us over to their house and we would invite them back, you know, a different house every week
5: and it was very successful. Anne Byrne mentioned a fear of violence for people who'd been mentally ill. Is this fear justified in some cases? Mary O'Mahony again.
10: Well, the percentage of violent people who are mentally ill in mental hospitals is very small. Um, It would be less than 3%, we're told. And the general public would have nothing to fear. And in relation to community psychiatry, people who are coming out from a mental hospital into the community are very carefully selected and they go through vigorous training and a violent person wouldn't be one of the sort of people who would be chosen to come out. A mentally ill person is somebody who could range from having um, a severe schizophrenic illness um, right through to anxiety and stress and indeed eighty percent of people who are suffering from mental illness and who need treatment, 80% of them would really be suffering from depression and anxiety. That would be the main thing.
5: And you don't think that their illness would uh,
10: cause them to be uh, threatening to other people? Oh, no. No, and you see, people remember years ago when there was no proper treatment and where there was overcrowding, in hospitals severe overcrowding and indeed where on the other hand there was uh, isolation, total isolation that type of treatment which is no treatment at all breeds violence. I mean put yourself or myself into a very overcrowded ward, supposing you're in a ward with 50 other patients you'd feel violent if you had any intelligence at all but that isn't happening nowadays So when people talk about violence and fears of violence, it's a very small group that would be suffering in that way and they would be treated very specially and would be segregated.
5: The work of the Mental Health Association and of other groups has helped to break down some of the public's prejudices about mental illness. But the stigma is still common. What is it that prevents people from talking about a nervous breakdown, for example, in the way they talk of a broken leg or a dose of bronchitis? It's
3: largely hidden. It's largely hidden because people are afraid of mental illness. And the reason we're afraid of mental illness is because we don't know a lot about it. And the worst part of that is... You know, when people suffer from anxiety or panic attacks, they think that they're the only people in this world that suffer like that. And if there was enough information, at least they would know that it wasn't just them. And in fact, that's what happens in the family who has somebody suffering from schizophrenia. They think there is something wrong with their
5: family. And do you think people are still very ashamed of it?
3: Oh, yes there is a terrible stigma attached to mental illness. I mean, it's almost... It's almost that you're, I don't know how you would describe it, contaminated by association, if you know what I mean, that because you have somebody belonging to you that's, that's mentally ill, there's something wrong with you as well. Have
5: you seen the stigma changing or decreasing at all over the years? Do you think it's still as much as strong as it was?
3: Well, I'd have to be perfectly honest. Now, I haven't seen the stigma decreasing over the years. I think it's it's more subtle now. We pretend that that it's okay to be mentally, ill. that that's all right. But in fact, it's still there. It's as strong as ever. And it's you think it's based on fear? Absolutely. It's fear of the unknown. It's a lack of information. It's because it's hidden that it makes it um, hard to admit. I mean, everybody is, I've said it before, everybody is mentally ill at times. But because of everything being hidden and swept, people find it very hard to admit that they had a nervous breakdown, that they take value, that they get upset, that they have panic attacks, that they suffer from anxiety.
5: And so everybody thinks mental illness is something that happens to other people?
3: Yes, exactly. It's just, you know, it's it's something
5: that happens to even though it's happening to them. The policy of care in the community in this country is based on a Department of Health report called Planning for the Future. This was published in 1985 and it was broadly welcomed by almost everyone affected by it. But according to psychiatrist Dr. Dave McGee, it doesn't take on this question of our attitudes to mental illness.
11: My main criticism really is to do with the emphasis. There's a passive emphasis. Right through the report, we use the, the word patient. And in one sense, the word patient denotes somebody who is helpless, confused, needs to be looked after, needs to be told what to do. And the report doesn't allow for uh, us seeing the patient uh, other than that. doesn't allow us to see the patient as an individual who has positive factors, who has lots of potential, who uh, who has a potential, he or she, to take on life and living in their own particular way. So what I'm, what I'm sad about is that there isn't a, a greater weave of, OK, there's this passive, we do things to the patient, we treat, we give drugs... But there's very little attempt to bring in that active, um, oh yes, the patient can do a lot for his or herself and those who are related, and the community can also be involved in caring, in helping as well.
5: What about the community? Care in the community assumes that the community cares. Do you think it does?
11: I think there's a, an assumption there that, that the community is caring, and I think that's a naive assumption. Um, and I would think the, our community in these days is under a lot of stress. A lot of people are surviving. So it's very difficult for me to talk about the idea of, of, of people caring for others when they are so just about surviving them, themselves. There's almost like a, an assumption that there is the patient who is helpless and, and in need of care, and there is the rest who are all together. And that is a terrible myth. Um, and I have a feeling that most of us experience a whole range of, of uneasy, stressful um, uh, experiences in our life, and somehow if we could begin to break through this myth and acknowledge, yes, we all um, at times have problems in living life very often is not easy, then maybe we would start breaking down barriers and begin to stop polarising each other, polarising the patient at one level, and us, me, I'm the expert, I'm well, I know it all at the other. We could start to, to, to balance out and learn from each other.
5: Recovery from mental illness may be affected by people's attitudes to the illness. It can also be affected by where the person lives. And according to the Simon community, for example, some of the people who are discharged from psychiatric hospitals become homeless. For them, care in the community means trying to find a damp, insecure flat to rent or living in a night shelter. John Leinster, who worked with Simon for years, says this is the last place anyone should live for the good of their mental health.
4: For example, night shelters are overcrowded. Um, You can't choose who you live with you don't have the privacy that people living in in ordinary houses have, and you don't have the... the, There isn't the ability to build bonds and and have the privacy to, to relax in an environment that you actually enjoy. It's very difficult when men have to share rooms with one another or when they have a very small cubicle to live in, and there is no space to keep or collect or save your own possessions.
5: You worked in Galway with people who moved from a night shelter to a small residential house. Did it make a difference to their mental health to move to the house?
4: I think it did make a difference. Um, I think that in in the residential house in Galway, there were six men living there. Each had his own room. Each man had a key to the front door. Each man made decisions concerning the... The, the affairs of the house, it was their house. They lived there, they made decisions there that affected their lives. They had privacy, they had warmth, they had a greater degree of security than they would have in, in the night shelter. They knew who they were living with. They could they could learn to develop relationships in the house which weren't short-term or fragmentary. They were long-term relationships. They, um, they had the opportunity to cook their own meals, they had the opportunity to make decisions about the running of the house, about what men come into the house, about the the activities of the house. And, yes, I think that by giving people freedom to make decisions about their life, then you can affect their mental well-being.
5: Did you see that happening? Did you see a change in themselves and their behaviour?
4: Yeah, I did. I, I saw the, the mental well-being of, of some men change for the better. Yeah, I don't think that merely accommodation is the only solution to, um, to a change in somebody's mental health or mental well-being. I think it's linked to other issues such as the provision of employment and meaningful, worthwhile employment, not, not employment which, um, for the sake of employment. But I think when you combine privacy, good accommodation, warm shelter accommodation with useful employment, then you're starting to look towards um, a response to, to, to the needs of, of people with psychiatric illness within the community.
5: A lot of the people who become mentally ill do continue to live with their families and are supported by them. But care in the community doesn't mean leaving all the responsibility for mental illness with those individual families. You see, I think that the family is probably
3: the least able to help a person who's, who's, who's been mentally ill because sometimes the person who's mentally ill has got sick in his own family. Now, I'm not saying that that's a reflection on the family, but that is what happens. And um, a lot of the time, the person who's mentally ill does not like to be around his other family members. And as much as they would like to help, the person who's ill doesn't want to have them a lot of the time. I don't think there are enough resources in any family. Now, I'm speaking about ours, but I've seen a lot of families um, there are not the resources in any family to deal with a, a person who has schizophrenia. You know, when I think of my mother and father, I really... I really feel so sorry for them because I know that they tried their best and they were almost broken by it. Your son, who's saying these awful things to you, and eventually you believe... You, I, they, They began to think, where have we gone wrong? What have we done to rear this evil son? That's the way it was.
12: Each family varies. You may have maybe aged parents. You may have quite a young family, as mine was at the time. My eldest son, he was the eldest of eight children. And it had caused a lot of disruption, a lot of trauma. We had had a lot of frightening experiences. And so you find then that he goes to hospital and when he's returning then and you're told that he's reasonably well, at this time, possibly, you don't understand that the illness is a chronic one. You don't understand the illness at all. You have all these unusual uh, beliefs with regard to, to the illness itself. And you find that a very frightened family is wa- awaiting the return then of the patient. Now, he can come back to that family, he can maybe more unusual and bizarre symptoms are gone. He can have negative symptoms, which is sometimes even more difficult to deal with because the negative symptoms mean that, he, that when I say he, it could be he or she, uh, they, they'll stop in bed, say, until 5 o'clock in the evening. They'll get up then, they'll play the radio incessantly, they'll make tea, they'll stop up all night, Possibly come to your bedroom door and knock at the door and say, I want to talk to you at three or four in the morning. And you say, Well, you know, I, I, I'm not in a position, I'm tired, and this is the middle of the night, and an argument will ensue. And you've either got to. This is only one aspect of, of the be, kind of behavioural patterns that you can get. And the the most. Difficult aspect of it, I think, is the unpredictability of it so that you can have somebody who is very passive, very loving um, in many ways and then within a few moments the whole way of life or pattern of behaviour changes just over a sentence that's spoken at the dinner table. They can, they can turn to someone and say they, they, that, that they've said something which they haven't said and then they can... Uh, um, you can have a violent row breakout because of the fact that maybe your children don't understand the one who is ill. They can't understand because I, I can't understand it myself. Uh, you know they're ill, but still it's very difficult to live with the, with the kind of pattern that the, the way the illness shows itself. So that um, your, your sons and daughters can say, Well, I'm getting out to get a flat. Or your wife can say, I I can't live with this anymore. You know, I'm going to break down myself.
5: The report Planning for the Future was published in 1985 and since then the eight health boards have been working on detailed plans to make care in the community a reality. According to Barry Desmond, TD and former Minister for Health, however, the health boards can be subject to conflicting pressures which could affect their decisions in this area.
13: I think the main problem has been the politicisation, the undue politicisation of health boards in relation to the reform of our psychiatric services. I I think this is a very grave question. But as you know, the structure of health boards is that a majority of the members of health boards are local authority members, and they, together with the ministerial appointees, comprise well over half of the membership of health boards. Now... We've got to be very careful in this area because many chief executive officers and programme managers and psychiatric consultants, they break their hearts trying to bring about the reforms uh, that I've outlined. But frequently, uh, local politicians, who very often, I'm sorry to say, and I'm a politician, and I have been ignorant over my lifetime of aspects of psychiatric care, Uh, but many politicians regard local psychiatric hospitals as a a piece of political prestige locally, a place of employment, a place where they, many of their friends and political supporters would work. And as a result, any change is bitterly opposed, such as the dispersal throughout a headboard area of psychiatric care facilities, because then, so to speak, the votes wouldn't be aggregated into one particular institution. And uh, I, I'm sorry to have to say that the level of... Um, Reforming zeal among many of the local councillors in relation to psychiatric care is minimal and is more related to the job prospects and the income prospects. And a psychiatric hospital can have a budget up to, you know, one and a half or two million pounds in a particular uh, small locality. It can be a major employment, income generating uh, institution, so to speak. And as a result, a lot of frustration and obstruction uh, can occur uh, based on purely parochial local considerations rather than the care of the people inside the hospitals, the professional uh, development of the staffs inside those hospitals and the introduction of new models of treatment, such as, I think there's no reason in the wide world why throughout the townlands of this country, in every major town, there's no reason why there shouldn't be a psychiatric hospital. For short stay, immediate care of a psychiatric patient in need of local support, living in the community, where they work and where they are born and where they come from.
5: The report Planning for the Future gives detailed descriptions of the facilities needed to replace the old psychiatric hospitals, but there's only a short section in it on what all this could cost. The Department of Health says that the plans could in fact be carried out without any new costs. I asked both Brian Harvey of the Simon community and psychiatrist Dr John Connolly, a member of the Western Health Board, what care in the community should cost.
14: I I think I would answer that by saying that it should cost a lot of planning. It should cost a lot of investment in time. It should cost a lot of energy in terms of sitting down with all the professionals, the semi-professionals, the patients themselves, I think that's very important, the voluntary organisations, the trade unions, all the, the matrix of groups that are involved in the successful implementation of a good plan like that. So I think it should cost a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of democratic participation, uh, as well as the financial resources to make it work. And those things are just as important as the financial resources, and virtually nothing has been put into that yet.
7: Well, there is a lot of argumentation about this, and some people would see community care as a cost-cutting exercise, getting rid of very large, old-fashioned, expensive institutions. I don't know that community care has ever been costed effectively anywhere. My own view of it is that it would turn out to be at least as expensive, if not more expensive, than, than the traditional forms of care if it's to be done properly.
5: Services for people who are mentally ill have traditionally been the Cinderella of the health service. The plans for community care seem to change that. But now that every kind of health spending is open to question, there is a new anxiety on the ground that these plans could be postponed or ignored. What will happen if they are?
14: I think uh, you will have... uh People
6: being discharged prematurely from hospitals, as has been the pattern in recent months and I think when the service is not there in the community, the backup service that should be there in the community is not there I think uh, it will, you will actually have an increase in suicide rates
14: I think a lot of people will become homeless I think it's it's very simple the um, if you one looks at the equation if you reduce uh, beds in psychiatric units if you reduce beds and accommodation in the psychiatric services and don't supply either an equal or greater number of places in the community, be that in in flats, in accommodation, residential houses, halfway homes or whatever else, Uh, if that equation is not equal, you will get homeless people. It's as simple as that. That is what has happened in the United States. That is what has happened in Italy and in other countries. And you will get that here. And I must say that from what I have read so far of the way in which psychiatric wards are being closed down uh, I would view the future with grave apprehension
7: If there is a hold up in the production of the kind of facilities we've been talking about uh, well that means that there are now people in psychiatric hospitals who could have been rehabilitated, could have been rehoused in the community could have had a better kind of life but now won't
5: one of the people who got a chance for a better life in the community is Paddy, who moved out of St. Sennan's Hospital in Enniscorthy over a year ago.
7: I had a very rough ride when I was a young lad. like you know, I come through my teens and my twenties and I was in the horrors of war all the time. From the point of view of getting ECT in the middle of the hospital... And Going down for shocks every week, every twice every week, for over a period of twenty-one years, like you had where you down, wouldn't. You? But now, do you see? I have come out, and it's all oh, that's all in the past. I don't look, I don't look uh, at the mental hospital as a way of life anymore.